0: Uh, Let me go ahead and pray, and then we will dive into our sermon this morning. Father, we thank you for the wonderful truths that we've been singing this morning. Uh, Really, this morning, through each and every song, we've been rehearsing the gospel. We've been rehearsing that it's only through faith in Jesus that we can have a right standing with you, that sin can be killed, that we can uh, be made whole. So even today as we explore that topic even more deeply in Ephesians chapter 6 in the armor of God, just take these words and apply it to our hearts and allow us to meditate on these truths and for those truths to transform us from the inside out. Be with our time. Be glorified by all that we say and do when we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In the mid-2000s, few people eclipsed Apple's CEO, Steve Jobs, in either fame or influence. And the release of the iPhone in 2007 really cemented his place as a cultural icon. But two years before the release of the iPhone in 2005, Steve Jobs delivered the commencement address for Stanford's University graduating class. And you know, commencement addresses are very interesting speeches to dissect. The nature of a commencement address uh, allows it to oftentimes be very philosophical in nature. The speaker is articulating some sort of worldview that he is encouraging or she is encouraging the graduates to view life through. And because of that, they oftentimes interact with deep questions of life. Why am I here? What is my purpose? Who am I? My identity? They dive into those deep philosophical waters. And at the end of his commencement address, Steve Jobs interacts with a lot of those very questions. I'm going to read a passage from his address that is now famous and often cited. Here's kind of how he closed out his speech. When I was 17, I read a quote that went something like this. If you live each day as if it were your last, someday you'll most certainly be right and it made an impression on me. And since then, for the past 33 years, I've looked in the mirror every morning, and I've asked myself if today were the last day of my life, would I want to do what I'm about to do today? And whenever the answer has been no, for too many days in a row, I know something needs to change. Remembering that I'll be dead soon is the most important tool I've ever encountered to help me make the big choices in life. Because almost everything, All external expectations, all pride, all fear of embarrassment or failure, these things just fall away in the face of death, leaving only what is truly important. Remembering that you're gonna die is the best way that I know to avoid the trap of thinking you have something to lose. You're already naked, there's no reason not just to follow your heart. Your time is limited, so don't waste it living someone else's life. Don't be trapped by dogma, which is living with the results of other people's thinking. Don't let the noise of others' opinions drown out your own inner voice. And most important, have the courage to follow your heart and intuition because they somehow already know what you truly want to become. Everything else is secondary. And then he closes his address with the summary statement of his wisdom, stay hungry and stay foolish. Now, it's really a fascinating address and no doubt the seniors that were listening to D- Steve Jobs thought he had just unlocked the secrets of the universe. And they gobbled up his wisdom thinking that was the most profound thing that they've ever heard. But I think uh, this commencement address is really an example of what Paul is warning us against in 1 Corinthians three eighteen and 19. Paul says, let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he's wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written that he catches the wise in their craftiness. The wisdom of this age is foolishness to God. And I think the advice that you just heard is actually foolish counsel. Yet interestingly enough, at the beginning of his commencement address... We as Christ followers should actually be in complete agreement with what he says. Because he starts off by saying that remembering that I'll be dead soon is the most important tool I've ever encountered to help me make the big choices in life. Christ followers should wholeheartedly agree with that assessment. That's exactly what James is getting after in James 4.14, where he says, What is your life? For it's just a mist that appears for a little while, and then it vanishes. Life is brief. Life is passing. And we need to oftentimes think of what comes after dead. We need to rehearse after we die. We need to rehearse regularly our mortality. Tomorrow is never assured, which means we need to live today with no regrets. And this is actually where we diverge from Steve Jobs commencement address because we both would say we need to live without regret. We would just have very different understandings of what type of life you should regret. For Steve Jobs, he was a naturalist. He was a materialist, which means he believed that death was the end of his existence. He didn't believe in a soul or a spirit or an afterlife and he thought that when he died, he would cease to exist. Therefore, living a life of no regrets for him meant carpe diem, seize the day, follow your heart, ignore any sort of religious imperative, and become whoever you most desire to be. Or really, just using his summary statement, stay hungry and stay foolish. Jobs is saying that we should allow our deepest hungers and cravings and lusts in life to continually drive us forward. It's our internal understanding of who we want to become that should be the compass that guides us through the twists and turns and the ins and outs of life. And realize that is the prevailing motto of our culture. That is what we hear constantly, let your heart be the compass. However, this wisdom is distorted and dangerous. Steve Jobs encouraged, encourages us to follow our hearts. But what does God say about our hearts? Our hearts are above all things deceitful and desperately wicked. Steve Jobs encourages us to seize the day for death is the ultimate conclusion. Yet God warns us to number our days so that we may get a heart of wisdom knowing that we are accountable to God for how we have stewarded the life that he has given to us. Jobs encourages us to stay hungry and stay foolish, and yet God would tell us that we are to stay hungry and thirsty for righteousness, but never foolishness. So as we continue our study of the armor of God and spiritual warfare, I want us to realize that one of Satan's favorite schemes is to get us to hunger and thirst and crave the wrong sorts of things. Satan desperately wants us to give no thought to eternity, but instead just to focus on things that are transient and temporary. Satan wants our hearts to be enslaved to sin, whereas God wants to free us from sin so that we can be liberated to pursue righteousness. So really our big idea of the day is this. Blessed, and I'm going to add a word after that, and safeguarded are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. That's what we're going to see in our understanding of the armor of God this morning. This morning, as we look at the armor of God, we are going to be unpacking the breastplate of righteousness. So as we begin our exploration of this aspect of the armor of God, let's begin by thinking of that imagery of a breastplate. In the Roman army, a breastplate was a vital piece of protection for the soldiers. The breastplate oftentimes stretched all the way from the neck down to the upper thighs, and it was crafted either of hard pieces of leather or metal that were overlapped in a scale-like fashion. And the breastplate was designed to protect your heart and your internal organs from any sort of attack from the enemy. It might have been to protect you from the arrows of an enemy archer off in a distance, or to protect you from the slice of a short sword in hand to hand combat. But the idea is if an enemy can pierce your heart or can get a gut shot in, you're not going to be around much longer, and that needs to be properly protected. Now, remember, When Paul is using this imagery of the armor of God, each piece that he chooses has a symbolic aspect to it. So why is Paul using the breastplate to symbolize something that protects our our heart and our internal organs? So actually in Paul's day, the heart was oftentimes viewed as the seat of one's desire and will. The the bowels, the internal organs, were oftentimes viewed as the seat of one's emotions and affections. And we actually see that in scripture. In Matthew 9.36, Jesus says he's looking over a crowd of those who are kind of spiritually lost. It says when he sees the crowd, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Now, our English translations say he had compassion, but the original Greek language there says he was moved in his bowels. Okay, that, that's a, I like our translation a little better rather than Jesus having bow issues, you know. But, but that's the idea. He was moved in his bowels. Why? Because your bowels represented your emotion and affection. So the breastplate is something that protects our emotions, our desires, our affections, and ultimately, the actions that flow from that. So, what is it that Paul chooses to represent this breastplate that protects that? He says it's righteousness. Paul encourages us to protect our hearts and our guts with authentic righteousness. So with the rest of our time this morning, we are going to unpack what Paul means by righteousness and how that will help protect us against spiritual attacks from Satan and his demonic forces. But before we dive in, I want us to think a little bit about the schemes of Satan. From scripture, we're introduced to the idea that Satan is a master tactician in battle. Satan will oftentimes choose to attack us indirectly rather than directly. He prefers to engage in guerrilla warfare using deception, surprise attacks, sabotage, and trickery. Paul even tells us that at times he disguises himself as an angel of light to convince us that following him is the right thing to do. Which means that sometimes instead of accosting us with outright lies, Satan is happy to settle with getting us to believe half-truths. Which means sometimes instead of aiming to fully disable us, Satan is content to just distract us. Sometimes instead of going for the kill shot, Satan is is content to get us to slowly compromise step by step until we crumble from the outside in. Sometimes instead of people... Uh, renouncing God outright, Satan will settle for turning Christians into religious legalists and whitewashed tombs who are outwardly have the appearance of being religious, but inwardly they are, are dead. Now here's the reason it's important for us to tease out this distinction. In Satan's quiver, he has far more than just the arrow of unrighteousness to try to bring us down. Satan also has arrows of counterfeit righteousness that he loves to use. If he can get Christians to wrongly believe that what they're doing is actually righteous when it's not, that can be just as effective in separating us from God or not having a kingdom impact as the arrow of unrighteousness. Lawlessness and legalism can be equally deadly in our spiritual lives. So with the rest of our time, I want to identify three arrows that Satan has aimed directly at our heart and our gut the seat of our emotions and desires two of these arrows are distorted versions of righteousness that satan hopes to deceive us with and then after we identify each arrow we'll see how the breastplate of righteousness is our only effective source of protection so with that in mind let's jump into our first arrow i call this one the arrow of works based righteousness the arrow of works righteousness and recognize that this is one of Satan's most utilized arrows throughout church history. Works-based righteousness is predicated on the lie that I, through my own actions and efforts, can make myself righteous in God's eyes. I can do enough to earn my way into a good standing with God and his good graces. Works-based righteousness wrongly believes that I can make myself or become righteous or innocent or justified through my obedience, my moral behavior, my religious actions. Believe it or not, much of the writings of the apostle Paul in the New Testament actually interact with this idea of works-based righteousness. I'm just going to cite three passages, but there are countless others that we can look at. In Galatians 2.16, The Apostle Paul writes, yet we know that a person is not justified, declared righteous by works of the law, by doing good things, by by earning it, but rather through faith in Jesus Christ. In Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, for by grace you have been saved through your works, right? No. Okay, seeing if you guys are awake, half of you fail, through faith, through faith, this is not of your own doing. Salvation is a gift of God, not a result of your work, so that no one can boast at the foot of the cross. And then in Romans three, ten through twelve, if anyone is still doubting that, Paul says, as is written, you aren't righteous. Right? That's Paul. No one's righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God naturally. All of us have turned aside and we become worthless. No one's doing good enough. Not even a single person. These are just a small sampling of passages that clearly contradict the idea that a righteous standing before the Lord can be earned through obedience or good works or any sort of moral performance. And that really surfaces an important question for us. Why is there so much ink spilt in the New Testament on this subject of works-based righteousness? And I really think there are two answers. First, because works-based righteousness is such a pervasive idea in the human heart. If you look at every other man-made religion outside of true Christianity, the mechanism for salvation, atonement, redemption, blessing, eternal life, is always variations of the same thing. It's always a works-based approach to all of those things. Results. Whether that's Islam, whether that's Mormonism, whether that's Hinduism, whether that's Buddhism, anything outside of biblical Christianity, the mechanism for which you have blessedness, eternal life, and favor with God is always my performance, my effort, my achievement, my moral state. Essentially, workspace righteousness kind of use God as a teacher, and at the end of our lives, we get a report card. And, it's deter- and our report card grade is completely determined on how we lived. Did I do enough to get a passing grade? Did I do enough to earn that A to get God's favor? And if our moral and good works outweigh our immoral and bad works, then we're saved and we have a right standing and we enter into eternal life. Every single non-Christian system is predicated on that idea. And realize when you list Uh, When you count up the numbers of the religions I just listed, that's in the billions, okay? Billions of people have a works-based approach to righteousness. But here's a second reason that works-based righteousness is discussed so often in the New Testament. It's a spiritually deadly belief system. It's a lie from the pit of hell. Because people who believe that their right standing in eternal life or before the divine is somehow determined by their morality, their effort, their religious works, and their obedience, they are deceived. And worst of all, on the day of judgment, if they try to present their moral report card and a works based approach to righteousness to the Lord, they're not going to hear the words that they expect. And Jesus gets at this very Pointedly, in Matthew chapter 7, he's talking about false prophets who were, who were presenting a distorted version of the gospel, but they thought that they were preaching the truth, right? They, they, were, they were not a, a preaching what God desired. And Jesus says at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. But it's the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. What's the will of God the Father for us to put our faith in Jesus, love him, love others, and be disciples of Christ, right? And on that day, many will say to me, but Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do mighty works in your name? They pull out the report card and they say, look, look at all the things we did. How are you saying this? And he says to, to them, depart from me. I never you, knew you, you workers. Of lawlessness these are individuals who are genuinely surprised that they're not entering the kingdom of heaven because they wrongly believed they were destined for eternity with God because of what they viewed as righteous works they were trusting in the wrong things for their standing before the Lord and realize that is precisely what Satan desires Satan longs for us to be deceived regarding our eternal destinies And the arrow of works-based righteousness can be just as effective as the arrow of unrighteousness when it comes to keeping us separated from God. The arrow of works-based righteousness remains one of Satan's greatest spiritual weapons, even here in America. Every few years, there are different research organizations that poll Americans and put together spiritual profiles. And one of the questions that is typically asked is if you were to die today, and you were to stand before the Lord, what answer would you give if he said, why should I let you into my kingdom? That's usually somehow, it's getting at the the idea of what are you trusting in for your salvation? And and more often than not, the vast majority of Americans believe they're going to heaven, and the reason they often give is what? I am a, I'm a good person. I'm a good person. And when you say I'm a good person, that is workspace righteousness. Because you're looking around and saying, you know, I'm not perfect, but I'm also not Jared. You know, and I'm just kidding, completely (laughs) joking. Just joking. But that's what it does. It does the horizontal comparison game, right? I'm not perfect, but I'm better than this, and I I think I get a passing grade. But if that's our answer, we're in trouble because that answer won't work. So if if works-based righteousness is not a winning answer, what's the only right response? Received righteousness. Received righteousness. We can only protect ourselves from Satan's arrow of works-based righteousness by understanding that a right relationship, a right standing before God can only be received by faith in Jesus Christ. And that's the idea of something that we call imputed righteousness. And you see this idea of imputed righteousness in 2 Corinthians 5:21. It says, for our sake, he, God, made him Jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. So what that's talking about is this. Jesus came to earth and he lived a righteous life. He is the one who always did it God's way. And as he earned that righteous life, he earned the reward. He had the eternal life given to him that, 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 that he rightly merited through his Uh, righteous actions. But then on the cross, what did Jesus do? He willingly swapped more report cards with us. He had all A's. We have all F's. And on the cross, he says, I am willing to take the punishment for your disobedience so that you can have the reward of my obedience. That's called imputation. We receive a right standing only through faith. It's nothing that we can do. And that is the heart of the gospel. So the first way that we put on the breastplate of righteousness in our spiritual battle is to understand that this breastplate must be received through faith rather than forged through our own efforts. And that really brings us to a second distorted version of righteousness that Satan hopes to lead us astray through. Satan will always try to minimize our spiritual growth through the arrow of self-righteousness the arrow of self-righteousness. What do I mean by that? What do I mean by self-righteousness? Well, here's what I mean. We are guilty of self-righteousness when we think too highly of ourselves, when we begin to look down on others, when we begin to magnify the sin of others while we minimize the sin and that still lurks in our hearts. And Jesus warns against this form of self-righteousness again in Matthew chapter 7, verses 1-5. through 5. Jesus says, judge not that you be not judged. Now realize that verse doesn't end there. That gets thrown a lot in our culture. Judge not, right? Well, okay, yes, Jesus isn't saying that we can never make moral evaluations. The verse continues. He's saying, don't be a hypocrite, right? So judge not hypocritically that you be not judged for with the judgment that you dull out, that you pronounce on others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but don't notice the log that's in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, then you'll see clearly to help take the speck out of your brother's eye. This passage is showing us a common temptation for Christ followers. And what is that temptation? To clearly see the sin of others while being blind to the sin in my own life. So let me rephrase Jesus' analogy here to make it pop a little bit more in 21st century terms. Imagine there's a person who has just a little bit of sleep dust left in their eyes from uh, when they get up in the morning, right? And someone goes up to them and they say, you've got something in the corner of your eye. That is disgusting. You need to go to the bathroom and get rid of that right now. And then that person that just called them out turns around and they have oozing nasty pink eye in both eyes. And their eyes are like crusted shut, right? And you're like, first of all, yeah, yucky illustration, right? But that's the point. So Jesus is saying, who? that's hypocritical. We would say to the person with the pink eye, you should take a look in the mirror first, you're way yuckier. Like, go deal with that first. But that's what Jesus is getting at. We are much better at seeing the minute failures of others while ignoring the obvious shortcomings in our own lives. And if you don't believe me, if you're married, just think of the last interaction or spat you had with your spouse. We're very good at saying, well, they did that. You did this. And then it's like, well, you did this. Yeah, but that didn't matter that much. You did this, right? I'll take 2% ownership, 98% your fault, right? And if you chuckle, trust me, we do that sometimes, don't we? We're good at seeing the failures of others. We're bad at seeing our own failures. And because of that, we're often puffed up with a false sense of our own moral superiority. We begin acting like the Pharisee in Luke 18, who arrogantly prayed to God, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust adulterers, or like this tax collector. Somewhere along the way, the Pharisee had lost sight of his own need for the gospel. He'd forgotten that he's no better than them. He needs daily transfusions of God's grace and mercy just as much as the people he condescendingly listed. He could clearly see the sins of others, extortion, injustice, sexual morality, yet he was hopelessly blind when it came to sins of legalism, greed, pride, and a lack of love and compassion. Satan would love to turn every Christ follower into a whitewashed tomb and a legalist hypocrite. That's what he wants to do, because when we do those things, we stop being effective for God's kingdom, and we stop looking and loving others like Jesus, and sadly, I think he's succeeding. I think there are a lot of Christians who are quick to call out and blast certain types of people and certain types of sin while remaining inexplicably silent when it comes to subtler sins that pervade evangelicalism. In 2007, Jerry Bridges wrote a book calling out this self-righteous behavior called Respectable Sins. And in that book, Bridges admonished us to take a long, hard look in the mirror and say, you know what, what are the sins that we kind of treat as respectable and excusable in our life? And here's a list of those, kind of his ideas and a few of mine intermingled together. The first one is anger and harshness. Anger and harshness. Now, I know this is going to come as a big surprise to all of us this morning. There are some angry Christians. I know that we've never interacted with them and we've never seen them on social media and we've never felt guilty of that ourselves. But believe it or not, there's some angry Christians out there. And oftentimes we excuse angry Christianity as I'm just telling the truth. And I'm telling the truth. And you know, we do need to tell the truth. But think of the truth as a blade you can use a blade in different ways. A blade in the hand of a surgeon is a good thing, right? Because it's carefully dissecting, removing something that's dangerous. A blade in the hand of a crazy person is not as good because they can use that as a machete just to swing around and hurt people, right? Truth is a blade. And when we just say, I tell the truth, well, you haven't given enough information. Are you surgically using that to help people, or do you have your sword and you're just whacking culture down as best you can and just angry and swinging that sword wherever you want? Truth and love, right? We like truth, love we can kind of throw away. There's, there's no room for harsh, angry Christianity. How about mockery and derision? Mean-spirited satire and sarcasm is not, it's not a spiritual gift, which is really sad because I'm really good at being sarcastic. And I'd like to think that's my spiritual gift, but it's probably a fleshly gift, not a spiritual gift. But, you know, I I don't think Jesus was going to deride and mock people. I don't think that's the way he desires us to influence culture. Discontentment, envy, and jealousy. Realize our entire advertisement industry in the U.S. is built on discontentment. You, driving that two-year-old car, need the new version of it. I do, I do. Let, I need a third mortgage for that car right now, right? That's, that is how American consumerism is driven. Are, are we discontent? Are we falling into that? Gossip. There are many people who have left the church and have experienced profound hurt because of gossip within their church family. Self-centeredness. Why do you think the prosperity gospel is so popular? It calls out to our self-centeredness. I do this. I get this. My life is better. Give me, give me, give me, right? The entire prosperity gospel is built around the idea of me getting what I want. How about workaholism? Workaholism. Hard work is a good thing. Hard work is commendable. But if you read in the Old Testament, Israel got in trouble because they went past hard work and they went into workaholism and they started working on the Sabbath because they were greedy and all these other things. And sometimes we can wear our workaholic ideas as a badge of honor in the church. I am so busy and hardworking. God must be so pleased with me. No, he's actually not. If, if work is getting the way of family and worship, that's not commendable, right? That's actually a sin. How about the prioritization of comfort and leisure over spiritual things? You know the crazy thing is, I can get up here and I am less nervous to do a sermon on sexual morality or or other things that kind of the church agrees on than if I got up here and talked about Lake Timer Packers, right? Because that steps on our toes. Because now, now stop it, stop it. You can talk about everything but the Packers. That is the forbidden thing, right? do we do we shy away from things we need to lean into what about materialism the american dream is never mentioned in the sermon on the mount as a key aspect of a disciple following jesus he doesn't say blessed are the two-story homes with the picket fences and three cars he just doesn't say that Uh, are we so fixated on that we're losing sight of what's most important or just a lack of self-control whether it's out of control spending or gluttony or alcoholism or anything else. So there are sins that are oftentimes tiptoed around or tolerated by Christians and minimized. But realize when we think that we can wink and nod at certain sins while we call out other sins, it makes us look like hypocrites. And when we are guilty of arrogantly believing the lie that my sin is not as bad as your sin. And when we do that, we become self righteous Pharisees that have no grace, no love, no compassion, and ultimately no effect for the kingdom. That's what happens Satan sidelines us because we are no longer causing people to hunger and thirst for what we have. We're not, we're not uh, sprinkling salt in the way that Jesus calls us to. So we need to be good at looking in the mirror and identifying the sin that's lurking in our hearts. And we need to be good as doing that uh, in our own lives as we are spotting the sin in our culture. In Jesus' kingdom, there's no such thing as excusable or respectable sins. Instead of a self-righteous posture, we need to have a posture of humble righteousness. Humble righteousness. That's the antidote. We must constantly remind ourselves that Christianity is just one beggar telling another beggar where he found bread. We are all beggars in need of God's grace. I think of what Paul says in 1 Timothy 1.15, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. We are all the greatest of sinners. And humble righteousness recognizes I need God's grace just as much as everyone else. There's no room for pride or condescension at the foot of the cross. So Satan's second arrow is the arrow of self-righteousness. So our first two arrows were very subtle. The third arrow that Satan uses is not so at all. He gets rid of all pretense and it's just the arrow of unrighteousness. It's just all out temptation. The arrow of unrighteousness. I need not convince you that our hearts are constantly being tempted by unrighteousness and sin. You know this to be true experientially. Whether it's a temptation from our residual flesh, from our culture, from our spiritual enemy, each and every day, we're forced to interact with the question, am I going to give in to the desires of my flesh, or am I going to resist those and try to follow Jesus? And Satan is working hard to get us to choose the path of unrighteousness and compromise. He wants us to return to the shackles of sin and shame that Jesus died to free us from. And the way he does that is not just by flashing temptation before our eyes, he also simultaneously tries to get us to believe lies that make sin far more easy to commit. Here are some of those lies Lie number one, no one will ever find out. It can be your little secret. No one has to know. No one needs to find out. You can hide this away and just kind of box this off and it can be your little secret. But the problem with that is God sees everything, doesn't he? We can't hide any corner of our, li- our lives from God. There's no such thing as secret sin. It's all before the Lord. Line number two, indulging this desire is the only way to feel satisfied. I have to give into this or else I'm going to be empty. I'm going to be Unfulfilled, I'm not going to be satisfied. Whereas scripture tells us that sin, yes, provides momentary fun. However, it never provides lasting satisfaction. Sin never satisfies. Satisfaction is a craving for something so much deeper than sin, and it can only be found in Jesus. Lie number three, this temptation is too strong. I don't have the ability to resist it. Whereas first Corinthians 10:13 reminds us that yeah, temptation, if we didn't have Jesus and the Holy spirit would be too strong. However, Because of Jesus, no temptation has overtaken us, but such as is common to man. And with that temptation, God always provides the way of escape. There's a way that we can resist if we're leaning in and resting in the power of the Spirit. Line number four, this is the last time. I'll get serious about this tomorrow. In the moment of guilt and... And sadness over our sin. We think I, I got to do something about it. I'll start tomorrow. But then the next day we don't feel as guilty or bad. And we find ourselves in the same pattern of behaviors. And change is always a day away. Or line number five. Well, I, I, need to, I can give in to this because God wants me to be happy. Right? That's God's the cosmic grandparent who just wants me to be happy. And, and God would never want me to, to not indulge something that I think would make me happy. I need to follow my heart. Whereas is God's primary goal, cultural happiness? No, he, his goal is holiness. There's no passage in scripture that says, be you happy as I am happy. But there is a passage that says, be holy as I'm holy. So holiness gets, uh, gets the trump card there, right? So God's desire for life is never going to violate his revealed will. We must not be ignorant of Satan's schemes, If we've believed any of those lies, you're in spiritual warfare. Satan is using those things to deceive you. And to be protected from the arrow of unrighteousness, we must commit to seeking after kingdom righteousness through the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Now, I know I've used the word righteousness a lot in this sermon. And now I want to kind of flesh out two ways that righteousness is used in Scripture. There's positional righteousness... And then there's ethical righteousness. So positional righteousness is what I talked about in the beginning of the sermon. I am positionally right before God because of my faith in Jesus. It is all about my identity. Because of my faith in Jesus, I am positioned in a right relationship with God. It's all about my new nature. But because of that new nature, because of the forgiveness of our sins, and the Holy Spirit now residing within us, we can live differently. We can now live righteously, and that's called ethical righteousness. That's the idea that through the power of the Spirit, I can say no to sin, I can say yes to loving God and loving others and being conformed to the image of Jesus. So when the breastplate of righteousness is both of those. I need to know positionally that I'm in Christ. And because of that position, I now need to live differently. The idea of that is this. By putting on the breastplate of righteousness, we need to become what Jesus has already declared us to be. Become who Jesus has already declared you to be. Live out your identity. And Paul gets at this in Colossians 3, 1 through 4 extremely well. If you have been raised with Christ, positional righteousness. Seek the things that are above where, God, where Christ is seated. Ethical righteousness. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not the things of this earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So how do we put off sin and put on new righteous patterns of living? How do we do Colossians 3, 1 through 4? Well, it begins this way. First, you have to set your mind in each and every day. You have to set your mind on things above, which means every day we need to have time with the Lord. We need to have time where we are refocusing our lives away from the distractions of this world and onto the glory of Jesus, which means we need to be spending time in his word in prayer and in worship. We need to reset our minds each and every day. But second... We need to choose this day. We need to stop delaying obedience. We need to stop putting it off and saying, yeah, 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 I know I need to make some changes in my life, but who doesn't? Next January will be a good time for my new New Year's resolutions because I already failed these ones, right? And we just kick it down the the road. No, choose this day and say, no, I want to get serious about this now. Third, stop flirting with temptation and start fighting it. You're not going to have victory with sin when you are always looking for how close I can get to the line without crossing over it. That's just not going to happen. You can't get, say, where's the line, and I just want to hang out there. The idea is to follow Jesus, not to look for the boundary markers. right? So instead of indulging and flirting and, and keeping, say, how can I fight temptation rather than trying to look for what the right amount of temptation is before I give in to sin? And then fourth, we need to rehearse the gospel daily. Every day, we need to remember what Jesus had to endure in order to secure our positional righteousness. When we think of what it cost him, what he suffered, that's the fuel to say, you know what? I love Jesus more than I love this sin. And because of that, I'm going to do the hard thing, even though it's momentarily uncomfortable. Then we also need to renew our minds, which means we need to cut out the bad influences as best we can. Romans 12:1 and two talks about being transformed by the renewal of our minds rather than being conformed to this world. How much of what we intake every day is trying to conform us to our culture? Seriously, think about that. And then think about it this way. How much time can you spend next to a campfire before you smell like smoke? Not very long, right? Especially if you threw a piece of wet wood in there and it's really smoky, right? Not very long. And the sad thing is, you probably walk away and think you don't even smell like smoke. But then if you go home and walk in the house, what's the first thing everyone says? Where have you been? You just smell like a campfire. It doesn't take long for that smoke to start uh, taking hold of you. And it's true with our exposure to culture doesn't take a lot of exposure to unrighteousness before it starts to impact our lives. And then lastly, seek out a partner. We fight better together. As we think about this aspect of the armor of God, blessed and safeguarded are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness or protected from Satan's schemes and arrows. So I'm going to return back to Steve Jobs' opening quotation. He encourages us to live each day as if it were our last. I encourage you to do the same thing, just with a very different understanding, knowing that the end of this life is just the gateway into eternal life. And with eternity in mind, that changes our perspective. Each and every day we should ask, what matters in light of eternity? There's not going to be a lot of people in eternity that say, you know what, I really regret living righteously and looking like Jesus. I honestly wish I would have spent more of my time sinning and doing awful things that don't matter, right? No, no one's going to do that. But there will be a lot of people that look back and think, I wasted a lot of time. Bless and safeguard those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that righteousness, even though it was out of grasp for us, was something that Jesus came to earth to merit on our behalf. Jesus lived a perfect life. He died on the cross. He rose again, conquering sin and death. And He did it all so that we might be made, uh, that we might be declared righteous, that we might be new creations in Jesus. And thank you that because we are declared righteous, we now can live differently that the Holy Spirit empowers us to live and look like Jesus. So help us to set aside every weight and sin that clings so closely and run the race that has been set before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. If there's anything that's convicted us or been exposed in our hearts today, help us not to delay obedience, but rather to confess that sin and to focus on Jesus uh, here and now and commit to saying, I want to live differently. We thank you for your grace and your love.